Hello and welcome to Systematically, your weekly theology podcast. Uh, I'm John Heaps, but I'm not talking to you from Austin, Texas today. I'm talking to you from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, the gang's all here. You guys want to say hi? Hey, everybody. Hi. Hey. That was jaunty, Brian. Thank you. I'm a jaunty dude. <laughs> That's true. Uh, we are all in Milwaukee because uh, the Lonergan on the Edge Graduate Student Conference is this weekend. Uh, a number of us are presenting. Uh, I am not, but I'm here in solidarity. And we figured, well, why just because we're all traveling, should we deprive you of an episode? We're going to be in the same place. So we're in Robin's really fancy hotel room. Uh, I'll post some pictures on the, on the Twitters of uh, our rig, how it's all set up. It's, it's pretty cute. We're crowded around a coffee table. There's a towel involved. There, there's a towel involved. Uh, you can guess how. <laughs> Spoiler alert, Ryan's wearing it. <laughs> um, so, so Lonergan on the Edge is a, an annual graduate student conference in Lonergan Studies, though it's, it's open to sort of Lonergan-adjacent uh, work as well. It happens in September each year. It happens at Marquette, through which uh, Ryan and Brian and myself are affiliated. And it's put on by the Marquette Lonergan Project, uh, which is supported by funds that were given to uh, Father Robert Doran when he came to Marquette uh, to advance Lonergan studies uh, through the theology department at Marquette. Uh, a few years ago, there was a, a panel on Lonergan and black theology, and it was very uh, both well-received and also illuminating. And so a number of us who were involved in organizing things thought, this is, a, this is a, something that needs to be an element of Lonergan on the Edge in perpetuity. And so what we did is we conceived of a special presentation slot in the, in the program each year. That normally the presentation slots are 20 minutes and you get 10 minutes for questions, so it's a half hour at a time. This one would be a little bit longer for the paper, about a half an hour, and a little bit longer for Q&A, about 15 minutes. And if someone... Uh, Put in a proposal, and theirs was selected for the for this special presentation spot. Uh, their travel funds would be covered, and their lodging would be covered to make it easier for them to be able to come and present. And the papers that we were interested in were ones that were focused at the intersection of Lonergan studies and contextual theology. And we were uh, not very long searching about for a name when it occurred to us that naming it in honor of M. Sean Copeland. Uh, womanist theologian at Boston College, at, formerly at Marquette, seemed the, the perfect, perfect way to, uh, to name it. So, I don't know, how many years on now? What, what year is this? For the, we, uh, this will be the fifth, sixth, or sixth. Yeah, so we've, like we're, we've had this while. Year, yeah, the, the sixth annual M. Sean Copeland presentation in contextual theologies at Lonergan on the Edge. And so today we have with us, this year's presenter, I want to say hi, Chanel. Hi, everyone. Uh, and, and Chanel, tell us a little bit about who you are, and then we'll do our intro questions that we've been prepping the last few weeks. Sure. So I am from Canada, um, and when I can, I try to do theological things and think theologically, so I'm really excited to be with all of you today. Um, <clears throat> so who wants to ask our first intro question? Oh, that's me. Great. Uh, Chanel, we've heard from everyone else, but I just really want to know, what was your worst fashion decision? Oh, goodness. Okay, so I think going back to grade one, it was cultural day at school, and my parents forgot, and I had no idea. And so everyone was kind of in their garb, and I showed up in, like, corduroy pants and a turtleneck, 
also it was May, so it was quite warm. And so it was a disaster. And my teacher had me go up there and talk about how this was a part of my culture when it is not. Um, And so that was terrible and has clearly scarred me for forever. That's I really like that answer because you didn't actually wear anything terribly outrageous. A different angle. A little bit weather a little weather inappropriate. Weather inappropriate. (laughs) But still a disaster. That's amazing. Um, okay, so uh, my intro question is, what's your favorite or most quotable movie line? Um, okay, and this is going to sound however it's going to sound, but I think anything from Mean Girls is so quotable yeah. and like always relevant and appropriate and suitable for any time. You know, birthdays, weddings, bar mitzvahs, funerals, even like you can fit it in there. The limit does great. not exist. Exactly. Yeah. The limit does not exist. No. <laughs> I also went the Tina Fey vehicle when yes. it was my turn to answer the question. So, um, what Chanel is your most memorable cooking fail? Okay. Um, so again, this is another accidental cooking fail. Most of the um, good ones are. Yes. So a few years back, I got really into DIY do it yourself conditioners. And so there was this one, this is pre me being a vegetarian that involved egg. Right, so I'm beating the egg and I'm putting in the oils and all the things, and then I put it in my hair. And usually, when you do a deep conditioner, you go under the dryer, right? And so I go under the dryer. Oh no! And I'm like, why do I smell scrambled eggs? (laughs) (laughs) I take off the dryer and the cap, and there are just egg pieces cooked all throughout my hair. It was such a disaster. I had to wash my hair all over again. Just, just the worst. Wow. That's you're making us feel amazing. really good about these questions. They're so embarrassing. You're better at this than, than we are. I also <laughs> just need to know, like, did the egg come out, like, after the first time you washed oh, your no, hair again? Oh, no, it's with a few washes you, like, and, like, combing and just, just a disaster. Oh, no. Was it scrambled oh, or, like, sunny side up? <laughs> you're the worst. <laughs> if you took a hot enough shower, maybe poached? I, don't I know, know, right? <laughs> yep. Yeah, maybe next time. Don't, no, nobody takes showers that hot. <laughs> no. I'll get sued. Okay, uh, that's just incredible. Um, so, uh, especially because sorry, I'm no, still yeah. on this. Like, I just didn't expect hair to feature so strongly in a cooking disaster. Like, yeah, that's really amazing. Just really went sideways here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, great. Um, okay, so so yesterday was the the Copeland presentation. Yes. And uh, we were honored to have you give give this year's presentation. Um, we we tell us. Then uh, just to start, just the broad strokes of what you talked about yesterday. Sure. Um, so I think in keeping with uh, contextual theology, which really calls us to um, be attentive to where we're situated, what's going on in our particular location, um, I kind of looked at the increase in missing and murdered Indigenous women that seems to be a phenomenon in Canada um, and thought about you know, what it might look like to respond to this issue theologically. Um, you know, and so I thought about you know, what Lonergan has to say about bias and how that might be integrated, you know, what Copeland does with her approach to, to theological anthropology and that, how that might help me frame my answer, um, and then looking at the Virgin Mary as well, and maybe, you know, how might, um, looking, how might we think about Mary differently, but also still be true to the tradition and true to the biblical accounts of who she is, to really be church better to mm-hmm. people who need us to be church in America. So, so um, for those of us uh, who are not in a Canadian context, or even if we are and maybe have not been attentive mm-hmm. to, to this crisis, what, what, what's been going on? Mm-hmm. 
So there's been an influx in just these cases um, of women who are particularly uh, either First Nations, Métis, or Inuit, uh, who have just either gone missing or they've been murdered. Um, their bodies have been found in very precarious places. Um, and so there is this really national outcry about, you know, how can we have this sense of accountability and how can we have this sense of, you know, national memory for these women and for these communities? How can we better support that? And so we see that this is, you know, a secular issue that um, is really, you know, ranging across the entire country. But then also I think that there's this space for a theological um, uh, reflection as well, which I think is really important. And it's really hard to know in Canada whether there's there's been an increase in in um, missing and murdered Indigenous women because no one really counts it. Like StatsCan doesn't keep track of it. The RCMP doesn't keep like they don't. I mean, they keep records obviously when people report them missing, but no one like collates them or tabulates them. And and there's no kind of history of those numbers either. So um, it's been it's been an issue that has been really poorly documented and largely ignored in the Canadian context for, for many years. So I think that that really adds to the importance of what Chanel's doing, that um, these are lives that are just forgotten. And um, there's been a huge outcry against that, especially um, from Indigenous communities. And um, yeah, I think it's, it needs to be talked about because it's, it's, something, it's an issue that is so easily ignored again and again and again. So then, in light of this, what was the specifically, or what are the specific theological elements that you wanted to bring to bear on it, right? Because we could have a practical discussion about what politically needs to change and these kinds of mm -hmm. things. Um, and th those would be important, obviously. Um, but, but you brought a specifically, specifically a set of philosophical and theological resources to bear. What were those? Definitely. Um, so uh, I began by talking about embodiment. So I looked at how Copeland kind of treats uh, the history of black or histories, sorry, of black female bodies in America, and how she kind of extrapolates from that to to justify certain theological claims. Um, and so I looked at you know the history of how indigenous women um have been treated throughout Canadian history, how that's sustained in a contemporary way. Um, and so what that means for us theologically, right? How we value the body of how uh, our bodies, but also how this um has some bearing on our understanding of the incarnation as well, right? That there's this um intrinsic notion of dignity, uh, right, of dignity of being a, a human person, and that that's really being compromised here. So that's the first step, I think. Um, and then I looked at uh, general bias and uh, group bias, which again are terms that are new to me as a theologian, but also um, just so that we could have some sense of ecclesial reflexivity about what it means to be church in a particular place, and how that might mean that we need to think about um, our disinterestedness in certain topics, or um, how we need to really grapple with how some issues really require a complex response, and that that's um, an ecclesiological uh, responsibility, right? Um, and so after reflecting on that a little bit, I know it's so many topics kind of jumbled together, <laughs> um, I thought about Mary, you know, and Mary's positionality, and about how there are so many similarities between Mary as this really young woman you know, living also in an occupied space um, and how she, you know, in the midst of this, um, this decision, you know, has this song of, of, of memory, of, of prayer, 
of justice, of transformation, and how that might also shape us as a church, as Christians, um, as people who care about the kingdom of God, how all of these things connect, that there really is no disconnect between who Mary is as a, an exemplar of what it means to be church, perhaps, but definitely of what it means to be a Christian and between what our, our obligations are currently. Um, and so kind of dovetailing on what Mary is talking about, you know, of this God of mercy, of justice, who has these generational promises from his ancestors all the way into the future. You know, what does it look like to remember? And so a lot of Indigenous uh, communities in Canada um, are, you know, participating in this act of memory through like the Red Dress Project, for example, where red dresses are, you know, placed in kind of exhibits or in protest to try to remember these bodies but also looking at memory as a theological category. And so what that means for us, you know, this notion of anamnesis, of always making present in a radical way, that, you know, this, this project isn't really trying to parachute out of nowhere some type of social justice responsibility. What I'm really trying to do is look at the Christian tradition, look at the things that we really value and that make us who we are, and say, okay, looking at our resources, how can we respond from where? So, so one of the reasons that that <clears throat> we thought that the the Copeland presentation was an important thing was 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 precisely something that's happening in your presentation, which is not just to create a space for contextual theology to be made visible, though that's important. Um, there are there are and there are uh, settings in, in the CTSA and things like that where where that's happening just on its own terms. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> One of the things that, that we wanted, because it's specifically a Lonergan conference, um, it was to have it be uh, a, a, at a point, a, a kind of dialogical connection between mm-hmm. Lonergan's thought and contextual theologies. And you did, did that so uh, beautifully yesterday, so thank you thank for that. You. It was excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, in, in what we're doing here, I want to draw out um, an element that, that our Lonergan-oriented listeners where their uh their the flag flag might have gone up in what you had just said. Okay. Because you talked about disinterested in these questions and topics, mm-hmm. and uh um one of the words that Lonergan uses that that Lonergan people will often rattle off and when they give sort of Lonergan definitions is they will talk about the pure disinterested desire to know, and there's an equivocation between how disinterested is being used in that frame versus how you okay. used it. So disinterested in that case. Um, is, well, actually, let me hang out with the ambiguity for just a second. Okay. <laughs> because one of the things that will often happen, right, is that when people hear, Chanel made a face when I gave the definition and it had the word disinterested in it, right? Because mm-hmm. that seemed like maybe we're going to get ready against some bullshit. Um, <laughs> and um, so the sense that in which you used it, that I took it, and correct me if I misunderstood, is that disinterestedness there is um, not caring. Right. That there's a there's a there's a an unwillingness to see um, out of a lack of compassion. Is that a, a fair way of restating what you said? I think like um, this, just a general inaction, perhaps okay. even right, yeah. um, or just uh, the action that maybe is taking place is disproportionate to maybe what's required. I don't know. If that's okay. Fair. Yeah. So so there may be some there may be some sort of notional interest, but when it comes time to do what's morally required. It doesn't go all the way through, maybe. And, and and maybe there's even less than notional interest a lot of the time. Like I think it I think it just ends up in that category of like 
if we all just close our eyes and ignore it, it'll just go away, right? Like, I think that there's a real disinterestedness, like even just um, an unwillingness to even start mm-hmm. the conversation. Or, or uh, so, so I, for example, as American white man could potentially say, what the heck does this even have to do with me in a certain way? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is certainly not my position, but I, I, there can be a distance that develops, which even just breeds disinterest because of a lack of empathy or recognition, mm-hmm. basically. So, um, so right, so, so all of that kind of, let's say, cloud of associations in that, on, on these kinds of questions. Um, so that when someone is reading Insight or something, and they see this this claim about a pure disinterested desire to know, mm-hmm. um, within that frame that Lonergan's using, the disinterestedness is about my interest, mm. right? That that the reason it's disinterested is not because it's not engaged, it's not even passionate. It's disinterested because it it's willing to set aside my own uh, preferences and sometimes even my own well-being, um, my own comfort, et cetera, et cetera, um, in order to come to the truth. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I desire to know in a way that may even be at odds with my own interest in that sense. Right. Um, and so the and so you brought up general bias, and so I, I want to ask about this too, right? So so where does bias fit between um, the, the theological anthropo- anthropological question about uh, the meaningfulness of human persons and human bodies and the question about marriage. That seems to be where, it's, where the space it's occupying is in what you were saying. Okay. Um, so I think that it, like the, the treatment of particular body types and that that is allowed to happen in such a, a grand scale way, I think, uh, indicates that there might be some type of bias there, mm-hmm. right? And so perhaps the um, maybe default setting to maybe not want to engage or not know because there's this mass scale erasure that's happening, so maybe you don't even see what's going on, um, I think perhaps sustains that bias, right? Um, and so if we look at someone else who lives in anonymity at the margins, who particularly wouldn't matter, but was on the outskirts of the empire, um, who had a certain social positionality to uh, the women who are, um, who are being targeted in these cases, then we realize that, okay, maybe this does matter because we can identify Mary with with these women, perhaps from a Christian perspective. Again, I wouldn't want to impose that on um, indigenous communities. I'm talking from a Christian standpoint to other Christians uh, so that we realize the relevance of actually talking about young women um, who are put into really precarious places and and the importance of that to our tradition, but also for us as human beings as well, if if that answers. No, it it does. Okay. Actually, while while we're on the topic of Mary, I was thinking after your presentation yesterday that you talked a lot about Mary as kind of, you know, an emblem of the church a little bit, and then um, identifying kind of Mary with these women, right? And, um, uh, you know, you talk about Mary as like, you know, as a young, poor woman living in occupied land and stuff. But um, it strikes me then that 
if we want to identify Mary with, uh, with I mean, any poor woman of color, but in this mm-hmm. context with the indigenous women, um, Mary's not just an emblem of the church. She's also an object of personal devotion, mm-hmm. and she tends to be primarily defined by purity, right? Like, um, in, especially in devotion, even more, I think, than in, like, I think in theological categories, again, but especially in Marian devotion, like, Mary is, is this emblem of purity, and she's actually an impossible emblem of purity for women, because she's both a virgin and a mother, mm-hmm. and she's dressed always, like, in, in white and, like, pastel blue, which... If anyone does laundry like at least white you can bleach like you're not getting anything <laughs> out of pastel blue right like so she's so pure and aloof and this impossible sexual ideal um and i just i got thinking about the juxtaposition between that and and how she thought of and like the red dresses that are, are are you know um used as an emblem of the indigenous women and um it just struck me that what you had to say about like the church being able to kind of identify these women with Mary means um, a a real change to how we understand Mary and our and kind of Marian devotion or like Marian's Mary's role as kind of an emblem of women. And I just wondered if you had thought about that or if you have much to say about it. Um, I I think that you know for a lot of Catholic or Christians that like Marian piety can really strengthen their spirituality, which I think is really important. Um, I think that perhaps in answer response to your question that it might make uh, Marian piety contextual in a different way. I don't think that looking at these uh, the positionality of Mary, which again is biblical, um, is uh, is um, an affront on the theological titles that we ascribe to her. I don't think it ever takes away from her as Theotokos. I don't think it ever takes away from the dogmatic position of the church. If anything, I think that it um, positions it truthfully. Um, but again, that doesn't take away from how our tradition has sustained a, an image of Mary. Um, you know, Marian piety, however it takes place throughout the world, is always a contextual thing. Um, but I, I think that it's definitely compatible with our Christian tradition as well. Can I ask the, 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 the same question in a slightly different way? Because okay. um, the, there was an implication, it seemed to me, in, in Robin's question, um, that, so, and again, always correct me if I'm, if I'm misframing it somehow, but that your presentation was about, okay, so if, if we appropriate the positionality of Mary, mm-hmm. it helps us deal with our bias um, because it overcomes the sort of bad disinterestedness. Mm-hmm. And maybe and you could even, maybe if you really wanted to be annoyingly Lonarganian, like I constantly <laughs> am, right, you could say, and it helps develop our good disinterestedness, okay. right? our, our transcendence beyond ourself. Um, and so there's a, there's a kind of one direction that it goes, right, that we recover the positionality of Mary, and it helps impel us uh, to, to see and to appreciate and to act upon um, mm-hmm. the, the, this a serious moral issue in, in Canadian life. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was an implication what Robin asked that was um, that perhaps it, that, that experience for Canadian and otherwise Catholics might rebound the other way. That in our attention to the positionality of Indigenous women and the violence that they face, that it might be transformative of our devotion to Mary. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and even might illuminate um, some elements of bias in our devotion to Mary. And again, I'm not talking so much about like the dog, you know, mm-hmm. some of the dogmatic things, but um, but yeah, that we ha- like that Mary has been understood primarily in this very white way in 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 like North American uh, Christian. Mm-hmm. Obviously, like there's an incredible like devotion to Mary in like South America that. Um, yeah, but I'm, I, I just, I do wonder if there's another direction here where actually, you know, it reflects, like, like you clarified really well, that maybe there's actually a little bit of bias in our Mariology, which we now have to go back and, and, and deal with theologically. Does that seem plausible to you? Um, I think that, like, we're, we should always be in a state of reflecting and, and um, looking how we can better reframe our theology and our Mariology as well, right? And our Mariology should always kind of inform our understanding of Christ. It should always, I think, be connected to our Christology if it's done really well. Um, and I don't think that we can deny that there have been instances where, you know, Marian devotion has um, maybe been in, inappropriate, that it has been so uh, gaudy that, like, it maybe it even teeters onto um, some type of, of worship even right and so it's like where do we find christ in the midst of this devotion even theologians like Hanser von balthazar can be very critical of uncritical appropriations of mariology mm-hmm. right and so i think as catholics and as christians we always need to um be aware of how we can have a very healthy understanding of what it means to um to uh see mary as as part of of, of our christian life um and so i think that perhaps yeah by reframing or including um, Indigenous women into the fold, into um, how we understand our perspective, it could lead to a transformation of how we understand Mary and devotion. Um, I don't think that would be a bad thing. Yeah. I, I also am very interested in um, your inclusion of general bias. Okay. Um, and interested in is can sound like uh, academic euphemism for I have a lot of critical questions. <laughs> I don't actually. Uh, he's, he's actually which, which disinterested. I, I <laughs> but but a good Whoa. disinterested. That's a good disinterested. <laughs> but actually, I was just thinking maybe yeah. um, since not everyone and probably most people who listen to our podcast aren't just like just like you know reading longer than every morning good over breakfast. Um, <laughs> I'm jealous. <laughs> maybe you could give like a, a 15 second definition of general yeah. bias before you kind of lead into your questions on it. Let me do, um, let no, me do. And disinterested. Yeah, of uh, course. Definition. Uh, let me do, let me do bias, group bias, general bias. That's a good Rattle idea. them off. Okay. Okay. Bias at bottom is about um, a refusal to ask certain questions and an unwillingness to accept the answers to those questions. So it's, it's a, a kind of downward force on understanding. Uh, individual bias is, is one category that comes up, which is in which the, the sense of disinterested you were raising, the bad disinterestedness, gets in the way of my understanding. Because things that aren't advantageous to me, I don't want to know about it. Mm-hmm. Um, group bias, in method and theology, group bias is often framed as the... Uh, the, the egoism of individual bias operative at the level of the group. I tend to like the account in Insight better, where um, it's, a little more, it's a little bit more detailed. The, the insights that are required for a group to deal with its practical problems are felt as threatening to the, the intersubjective fellow feeling of the group. 
right? So if we change the way we do things around here, mm-hmm. are, is it, are we still going to be us? Right? Or are we going to lose this important fellow feeling of usness when we change things, mm-hmm. right? I think my son watches Daniel Tiger, right? And one day his red sweater is in the wash and he can't wear it to school. And so he has to wear his blue sweater. And one of the things his mom says is like, you're still you. Mm-hmm. Right. But that fear of a loss of identity because the practical circumstances are going to have to change is, is an insight what really drives group bias. And then general bias. The, the thing about individual and group bias is that ultimately, because they're a refusal of um, practical ideas, eventually the circumstances deteriorate to the point that you have to abandon it. Mm-hmm. Right? You become so isolated as an individual or as a group that things break down and it just stops being it stops being practical to close yourself off to these ideas. The more insidious form of bias is something called general bias. And general bias is a refusal to admit those kinds of ideas that are beyond the practical, um, that, that would be needed to deal with reality on reality's own terms in a way that's not circumscribed by the present concerns of what do we got to do right now to keep things going. Um, and so general bias is a bias against, in Lonergan's idiom, theory, uh, against uh, good disinterested accounts of reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always sort of like the, the recovery community's language of that, right? Dealing with reality on reality's own terms. Mm. Um, Lonergan's sort of technical definition for, for theory and explanation is uh, dealing with things as they relate to themselves and not in terms of the way they just relate to me. Um, so that's a, a pricey on bias. Yeah, and, it, and so like in the specific example of like indigenous relations in Canada, individual bias is going to be like, I don't want to like, I don't want to think about this situation. You know, I'm not indigenous. Like if I, you know, um, it's going to be disadvantageous. I'm not interested in thinking about those questions. And the kind of group bias is, 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 is that, but you know, uh, whereas a society, we kind of reject those, like, you know, and, and primarily white society, like we reject those. But and general bias would be more like um, the focus in Canada on just getting by on 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 the practical solutions like getting water to you know um, reserves or getting roads to reserves or um, having counseling programs or all these practical responses which like aren't bad enough of themselves but without actually rethinking like oh the entire relationship we have like. What are alternatives to the Indian Act, right? Like, what are creative alternatives to like reserves? To to uh, what are ways that we can understand the land and the makeup of the country and and all of these things that are just fundamentally theoretically different than the relationship we have now? So then, my question back back to Chanel is, um, in light of that framing of the problem being general bias that you identified, in addition to group bias, what are the theological or philosophical theories that you think are being kept out of the frame, or at least aren't, at least haven't been brought into the frame yet? What 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 are the tools that you would want to bring to bear philosophically and theologically to begin to face up to the reality of the situation on its own terms? Right. Um, so I think even just by talking about general bias is mm. is a start right mm-hmm. um this sense of just not being aware of the fact that you're not aware is an issue right and mm-hmm. so how do we bring awareness how do we talk about that how do we talk about what it means to be complicit even though you might not directly participate in something um and what does it look like to 
to transform those systems, right? Even if it works against, you know, your own interests, as you said, um, but in service uh, to the kingdom, in service to the least in our society, uh, what does it mean to have that conversation about about the required change, right? And you talked a little bit about intersectionality as being important too. Mm-hmm. Um, so intersectionality is essentially um, a theory that uh, takes into account the different vectors that kind of interlock together in a person's identity to either talk about you know how they experience oppression or perhaps how they get to navigate the world. So I think not necessarily just seeing this as, oh, it's an indigenous issue or it's a Canadian issue, but that it's an issue that's really compounded by gender, race, sex, you know, colonialism, time, all of these things really come together to um, situate these women in a particular place. And so as church, what does it mean when we see this as a really complicated and layered issue, not as just a one-sided thing that will pass with time, but that, you know, perhaps this is a deeply entrenched and perhaps systemic issue that needs to slowly uh, be untangled. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and right. And, and so because it's so complicated, then you need, you need tools that are up to that kind of task. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's uh, where contextual theology can be exciting. I mean, it doesn't always intersect with, you know, sociology and things like that. But I think that sometimes when theology does uh, learn from the social sciences, we do get those tools that maybe aren't uh, so obviously or readily available to kind of analyze uh, how we can do theology better. Mm. It, it seems to me that in the analysis you were, you were doing in your paper that you were, you were, you were locating the problem of general bias in, on, in, on two sides. So on, on, at one level, you just have the, the actual problem as it exists in Canada, the actual experience of this very specific kind of oppression that Indigenous women face. Mm-hmm. And then you have another problem which is the christian community's response or lack thereof to it and in both instances it seems that what you're really calling for is a a theoretical intervention into the problems on both both sides Mm -hmm. the part that i like so well one of the many parts i like so much about your argument is that um you were you were not uh shy about about telling Christians what kinds of things they're going to need to pay attention. Uh, and you gave and offered resources from within the tradition for doing that. But you methodologically restricted that to just what you were saying to the Christian community. You didn't let that become a license to then go, oh, well, if we just have, if we could just teach this theology to these women, then we would have the resources we need, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And just down on violence. Reinscribe that, that all those same you know, power dynamics That's all right. over again under a different guise. So the move to theory is really important, but, but, it's, but it's important insofar as one recognizes the actual spe- specific and concrete occasions that the theory is intervening upon. It's not, it doesn't float free of, of, of the, the concreteness of the inquiry that gives it out of which it arises and mm-hmm. i just i just appreciated so much the delicacy of your argument because you you were able to um both identify these two really distinct 
context that demanded theological problem, uh, theological and theoretical solutions, without um, without doing imposition one way or the other, and 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 in, and in doing that, you maintain clarity about what the problem really is. And if you're not clear about what the problem is, you know how how are solutions ever going to arrive? But by accident, yeah, exactly. <laughs> if at all, yeah. and and so and so not in a way that's usable on a large scale, at least without a lot of luck. Mm-hmm. Was there anything else you wanted to uh, make sure that you mentioned or talked about that you uh, that you brought up yesterday? Or um, I think we had a really thorough discussion about some of the topics that came up, and I also thank you guys for your reflections and your insights on things that I said as well. I think this was a really rich conversation so thank you thank you for joining us yeah it was a pleasure um so we do a thing called treasures old and new where we we go around each week and one of us shows up with uh an old book and a new book that we want to uh relatively speaking to let our yeah let our those terms are malleable let our listeners know about so this week uh we have brian excuse me dr brian bajek with us (laughs) i'm I'm graduand well, okay. <laughs> Legalist. I'm throwing weird visual shade in uh, right now. Because I wasn't going to bring that up, A, and B, that's oh. awful, right? <laughs> but, but as a shout out to almost Dr. Bajak, I went to his defense. <laughs> that's even worse than what I yeah, said. Yeah, oh. Yeah. Oh. They've really fallen apart here. Okay, anyway, so uh, you were going to say something nice eventually. Doctor, damn it. In my, in my office. <laughs> you were going to say no, something nice, Rob. I mean, yeah, it's really out of character, so I had to preface it by something not nice. Of course. <laughs> um, no, I went to I went to I went to Brian's defense uh, last week, or Which and um, now, uh, oh. and he did really great. Everyone should be extremely proud of him. And if you're at home right now, just like rattle off a little round of applause with you know you and your podcast on the bus so that you really look like an idiot uh, in honor of, <laughs> of Brian's success. All right, Brian, I'm treasures the, old and new. It's going to take me a minute to recover from all that. Uh, <laughs> so my, my uh, treasure old and my treasure new, it's, very, it's a German-themed treasure, treasures old and new, which I did not intend. Um, uh, so the treasure old really came up uh, because of a conversation that I had after one of the other presentations yesterday. It was, uh, it was a very good presentation on the productive, hopefully. Uh, not, it's, this tension is not always considered productively or framed productively, but ideally it ought to function productively. Uh, dialectical tension between charism and authority. Uh, this presentation had to do specifically within an evangelical setting, but I think you can abstract that and use it more broadly. And I ended up having a conversation after the presentation with the presenter where uh, the, the emergence of ecclesial, ecclesial structures in relationship to authority and to power came up. And I asked if uh, this presenter had ever heard of Johann Adam Miller's uh, Einheit, or unity in the church. And uh, unsurprisingly, the answer was no, because it, it's not a super widely read book at this moment, partially because the English translation of it is relatively recent. And it occurred to me yesterday that it was actually really fitting that uh, this be my treasure old, because I found out about this text at a Lonergan on the Edge in the past, because Grant Kaplan gave a presentation sure. uh, from St. Louis University, gave a presentation where 
uh, although I had heard of the text, I had a vague sort of familiarity with who Miller was. Uh, I, I knew nothing about it, and his presentation of the sort of development of this guy who wrote a book when he was, I believe, 29, and uh, he, he dies in his 40s. He has a very short career. Um, uh, in 1825, he puts out this text on how he, he believes that the, the fathers of the church had a, a very robust understanding of the emergence of ecclesial structures and a very pneumatologically focused understanding of the emergence of ecclesial structures as organic. And as opposed to treating the episcopacy or uh, the presbyterate or the diaconate as sort of window dressing that uh, end up getting put on top of the church, which is one way some historians treat the the development of the more uh, visible political or power structures associated with the church. Miller's argument is no, actually, there's an organic necessity to the way these development or these developments occur, and uh, there is actually a, a pretty solid consensus that they're necessary in their emergence. And so, I I would recommend uh, checking out that book. It's it predates Vatican II by a century and a half, and he's Miller is very widely read among those people who become the influential theologians at Vatican II. So uh, the the German and French theologians, uh, so Yves Congar, for example, uh, it, it, there's when you read Miller, you go, oh, this is okay. this is where Congar's sort of the, the seeds of Congar and similar thinkers are germinating. And I, I would highly recommend reading what was then a pretty controversial text and is now very resonant with the theology of Vatican II. Uh, speaking of people, at least Vatican II adjacent, uh, my, my treasure new is another one that sort of came out of nowhere and surprised me. It's uh, then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger's book, which I believe was published in 1995. Uh, it was originally a series of homilies he gave in 1981. When you reach back deep into the 19th century for your treasure old, your treasure new can yeah, be 20 years it's, old. Yeah, it's <laughs> relative. The reason it's a new treasure to me is I'm currently teaching a Theology of Creation and Grace course. Uh, and so this book, which is entitled, I have to get the, it's a long title, I have to get it right. Uh, in the beginning, in quotations, and then an ellipses after that, uh, A Catholic Understanding of the Story of Creation and the Fall. Uh, one of my primary texts for that creation and grace class is Cynthia Ormerod, uh, Cynthia Ormerod, uh, Cynthia Crisdale and Neil Ormerod's uh, Creator God Evolving World, which is a spectacular uh, integration of Lonergan's account of emergent probability into the very polarized conversation about the relationship of science and religion. And when I suggested that I was going to be teaching that in the class, Eric Mabry, who's my colleague at Christ the King Seminary and one of our friends, pointed me in the direction of this book by Ratzinger, which kind of does the same thing in a homiletic setting, hmm. uh, using biblical foundations. And I, I have to confess, I don't really read a ton of Ratzinger. It's a beautiful book. And I think, it, especially teaching in a seminary setting, it presents what can be very dense and even dry or abstract academic ideas in a very pastorally focused language. And I, I've found it actually very edifying to read at this moment. So it's, uh, it, it argues for the necessity of the idea of creation as theological topic and uh, 
even theological driving force in a contemporary scientific horizon. It's very good. Oh, terrific. Thanks, Brian. All right. Uh, that has been our on-location episode of Systematically here in Milwaukee. Uh, you can find our podcast not just on SoundCloud, but also on iTunes. So if you're clicking through to SoundCloud, you can go to iTunes and subscribe these days. Um, and while you're subscribing, you know, if you want to leave a rating or a review, that would be awesome. That helps people find the podcast. Robin was telling us a story earlier about a friend of hers who found the podcast through these recommendations from iTunes and then realized that Robin was on it. Um, so, yeah, so please check us out on iTunes. If you want to send us an email, you can email us at um, systematicallypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to find us on Twitter, it's systematicpod, at systematicpod on Twitter. Um, our music, intro and outro, as always, is track 14 off of Ghosts 2 by Nine Inch Nails. Thank you, Trent Reznor, for your Creative Commons license. And in conclusion, and in honor of our plenary address last night, I want to say, be in love with the passion of being. Thanks. Bye.